I was going to say ladies, but there's ladies and gentlemen. So We're going to try this thing out. We haven't tried this thing out in a while. We'll see how this uh, works for the preacher now that he's been sitting on chairs for a year, basically. Um, this morning, I just want to, want to remind you how grateful we are to have you back. And um, as things begin to continue to open up, we'll try to keep track of what new rules and regulations are coming. It appears that there may be uh, some changes on the horizon, although I understand some of those have been walked back a little bit, so we're not really certain. It's been part of the frustration for your preacher that there's never you can never actually plan for more than a week because it changes every week. But um, we are grateful for the the faithfulness of all of you, and uh, we will try to keep you posted uh, on things as they continue to change. Um, I will also just let you know, if you just remember good practice, after this thing is all clear, remember those things that we used to tell you before all this started? You know, if you're sick, we love you, stay home. If, you, you know, if you're coming and you're, uh, you're uh, not sure, just, you know, be, be careful with others around you. We'll try to keep the place clean and keep all those things going well. Wash your hands, etc., etc. Remember all those things we used to talk about before we all started wearing masks and social distancing and all that stuff became, that's so I don't have to wash my hands. I don't touch anybody. So, you know, now you've got to go back to washing your hands. So uh, when, when we get back to an open house, we're going to ask you to remember some of those things, and I think it'll ease us in with a, without a, a big bump in dist- of anything. We've been very blessed in our church um, that the Lord has watched over us throughout all of this and in throughout all of the, the processes that have been part of this, uh, this last year. So thank you for all that you have done. I can't, uh, I can't thank you enough. I just really can't. So this morning, in thanks, I decided to talk about the communion of the desperate, because that's just what thankfulness looks like to me. Not really. I, I, I wanted to talk to you about the communion of the desperate because it came to me this week in some of my reading that Jesus seems to be drawn to the desperate. Um, you see it quite a bit in the scriptures, in the New Testament in particular, but it is an interesting thing that I never noticed before. Jesus being drawn to the desperate. Now, I, I like the way the psalmist describes this desperation when he says, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. So as, as thirst, have you ever been really thirsty? When you just, you know, the mouth has dried out. And now it's beyond dried out and your throat is starting to get a little scratchy because you're just really, really in need of a drink of something, anything, a little bit of water, an ice cube, anything to kind of just loosen everything back up as the deer pants for the water. And remember what Israel is. Israel is a semi-arid climate. It's not unlike California in that way. And imagine that you're out in that that warm, dry, sort of California central state, Fresno, Bakersfield kind of dry air. And your mouth has begun to dry out in that dry air. And you have no way to satiate that thirst. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. And as the temperatures rise past 90 and into the hundreds, you can feel the heat, you can feel your body perspiring and pushing out more water and there's nothing to replenish it as the deer pants for the water so my soul longs after 
you. Desperate for God to quench the thirst of our soul. The church is the communion of the desperate. And I want to I start out in this picture with um, maybe a bit of a different kind of desperation. I want to to talk about being desperately joyful. See, we we only think of desperation as a negative, but there you can be desperately happy. You just can't help yourself. You're just blowing out smiles all over the place. We're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 6. A few of those texts will be on the screen, but I am actually going to be uh, reading more than what will be on the screen. This is the story that's kind of, uh, needs a little bit of setup, a little bit of background. David has been trying to move the, the sanctuary into Jerusalem. He is trying to bring the ark <clears throat> up to Jerusalem. And in so doing, he's found that uh, the, the, the way the Philistines moved the ark wasn't the way God wanted it moved. There's the experience just before this, about three months before, when Uzzah reaches up, reaches up and grabs the ark and is falling dead immediately. Now three months have passed, and David has decided to go because of the blessings of Obed-Edom, the person whose family the ark now abides. He's decided to go and get the ark back. He's decided he's going to bring this thing back before the Lord. And so I'm going to pick up, we're going to emphasize verse 14 first, but I'm going to pick up just a little bit before that. I'm going to pick up in verse 12. Now it was told to King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. So he brings the ark. He's happy to finally figure out how. He's now got the Levites out there. They're carrying it on their shoulders instead of putting it on a cart. It's being, tra- it's being brought as it was described by Moses for Israel to do. And verse 13 says, And so it was, when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. So he, they take six steps, and he has a sacrificial offering that, is taken, that takes place. And so as this procession starts to move, it's not moving quickly. It's moving rather slowly. They're carrying the ark on the shoulders. They're going at a pace that a person could walk, carrying a fairly heavy load. And as that procession goes on, this next phrase comes up in Scripture. It's verse 14. And so David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So he's taken off his, his robes. He's taken off the, the robes that demonstrated that he was king. He's, he's discarded all the things that separate him from everyone else in Israel. And now he's just wearing the linen ephod. I've heard people say that it's kind of an underwear thing. That it wouldn't be something the king would normally be wearing out in public. But you also have to remember that linen ephods were worn by priests and other people. So it wouldn't be like yours. It would be more like a kind of a, 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 one of those undergarments that people used to wear to sleep in you know those those things you always see see when you're when it's the night before christmas and the guy gets in the pictures he comes out with his little his little lamp or his little candle and he's got that what looks like kind of a smock on it's more like that it's more something like that that he's wearing a linen ephod is all that he's wearing 
But he's no longer wearing those things that demark him as king. He's truly stepped into a more humble state of mind and he's desperately joyful. And he's begun to dance. I I don't know, have you ever been so moved by something that you just felt like you had to dance? Even if you can't dance? You know, you're stepping on your own feet, but you're just so excited to be here or so excited to be happy, you just can't hold still anymore? You see this among little children all the time. Little children unencumbered by the the stresses on adulthood. Little children, I'm talking, you know, maybe five and younger. Those little children will break out into a dance over lots and lots of things. Just so excited for things. And the dances often look like running in place, but they're still dancing. You know, they're just arms going, feet going. They're just excited about something. That's David. He's so jazzed that the ark of God is moving forward into Jerusalem that he can't help himself. He's desperately joyful. You can be desperately joyful. It's just oozing out of you. It's flowing like a river out of you. Desperately joyful. I just want you to hold David there in your mind. As we read verse 15, So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of trumpets. How does this sound to you right now? How how does this event sound as you're hearing people, all the the house of Israel shouting and blowing trumpets? And there's David. And who knows? Maybe he's drawn a crowd. Maybe there's a group of people out there in front of the ark just, just going in for it all they can. They got no moves, but they're making some moves. They're so excited that the ark of God is moving into Jerusalem. The city of God, the place that will become the center of worship for the people of God, the the city whose name means you will see peace. You will see peace. And here on the rock, on the very top of this thing, on this, this little mound, that it's flat now, but it was a crest originally, there on top of that mountain, on that rock, where Abraham had stood with Isaac, they're going to take the ark to that place. And David is jazzed it's been 700 years of the ark wandering around in tents from place to place and david's taking it home it's going to where it belongs and he can't sit still he can't even walk in a normal pace he's thrown off his coat he's tossed his crown to somebody who can watch it and he's just boogieing he's just got it going on and he's having A great moment of freelance worship. I don't know if you can even imagine freelance worship. We are so structured in all the things we do. 4-4 time is our favorite beat. We're all kind of waltzing through worship. And David is on a completely different place. He's desperately joyful about what's happening. Oh, I hope there's a video. Don't you hope there's heavenly videos? So you can kind of step in. God will show you. I don't know. Maybe it's a 3D projection of some sort. And there's David just getting jiggy with it. Now the ark of the Lord came. Now the ark of the Lord came. Into the city of David. And Michael, Saul's daughter, 
I got to get that one to change for me. There you go. Now the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, and Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window. It's interesting because up at this point, up to this point, it's just this wild, cool, sort of joyful thing that's introduced as the ark is moving, as it's getting close to the place where it will be for the rest of the history of Israel. This is the place. You know, Solomon will build the temple on that place, and for 200 years, that ark will sit right there. And now it simply says, and Michael, Saul's daughter. Do you notice it doesn't call her David's wife? But when the, when the historian is writing this, he doesn't give her the honor of being called David's wife. And she was David's first wife. A lot of water has gone under that bridge so far since then. A lot has happened since then. But here is Saul's daughter looking out the window. And she saw King David leaping. So now you get a chance of what, to, to understand what he's doing. He's leaping. And the Bible says whirling. So I get this kind of a deal. I don't know how that works. I'd be dizzy in the first 30 seconds. But he's leaping and he's whirling around before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. Here's King David. He's just enjoying and embracing the moment that he's in. He is in front of the ark of God as it's moving into the city of Jerusalem. And he's so excited, he can't sit still. He can't help himself. He's just got to move. And he's there leaping and twirling and whatever else that looked like. And his wife looks out the window. She walks off shaking her head. Have you ever been tempted to look at someone else's worship and shake your head? You know what I mean? Sometimes you see someone else worshiping and you go, you make that little clicking sound with your tongue. Mm-mm-mm. We ought to be careful with that. We ought to be real careful with that. Verse 17 says, So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. So David has already set up the tent. He's got the tent already. It's sitting there waiting for its primary function to be brought to it. The tent is there. It's empty. It has no presence of God in it because the ark is off in Obed-Edom's garage. Now it's come to the city of David. It's moved into the tent that David has set up for it. And then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of of the Lord of hosts. So the worship service, the excitement, the trumpets blowing, the people shouting, David dancing, it ends at the tabernacle and they carry it into the Holy of Holies. They set it down. They drop the curtain. They move out of the sanctuary and gathered then outside the sanctuary, maybe inside the court, maybe outside the courtyard. The whole gathering has, has shared these offerings before God 
And then David prays for and blesses all the people of Israel. What a day. How amazing. How cool would this have been? Then he distributed among the people the whole multitude, both women and men. So even the girls got some. It's significant when the Bible mentions women in these things because they're so often left out. To everyone, a loaf of bread, a piece of meat. Remember, there's a big, there's a bunch of offerings and those offerings get eaten. A loaf of bread, a piece of meat, a cake of raisins, so that all the people departed, everyone to their house. David hands out the food. The food is distributed to all the people who have gathered for worship. The potluck plate has been passed. And everyone takes their plate and heads home. Still reveling in the blessings of the day. Then David returned to bless his family. Would you flip that next slide for me, please? Then David returned to bless his own household. He had just blessed the people. He had just had this great thing. Now, think about what, what his intentions are. He's still glowing. There's still an, an afterglow from the experience that he's just had. He's still bearing that joyful worship in his heart as he walks through the door. His plan is to bless his children, to bless his wives, to bless the people of his household. As he has done for the whole of Israel, he wants now to do for his own family. Such a great moment for him. Such an uplifting experience. And he wants to share his joy with them. He walks in the door. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today. Just about like that, I think. Maybe worse. Maybe more harshly than that. So David said to Michael, it, the dancing, was before the Lord who chose me. Now he, he will say, and by the way, not your family. Now she just did, she just did come kind of pop his balloon as he walked through the door. So like most family fights, he jabs back. But I I don't even want you to focus mostly on that. I want you to focus on this phrase. The dancing was before the Lord who chose me. You know why I was so excited, Michael? You know what was so, so moving to me, so joyous to me that I couldn't stand still, I couldn't I couldn't keep those robes, those, those encumbering robes and that, that heavy crown on my... I couldn't do it. I, I had to throw all of that aside and, and just, just jump out in front before the Lord and celebrate what was happening. Because I, here I was moving the Ark of the Covenant of our people into the place where it will be as a representative call to worship for everybody... And as I'm going along the road, I realize that that God who made heaven and earth chose me. How could I sit still with that knowledge? 
And then the probably the most famous line of the day. Therefore, I will play... He, he has three things he's outlining. I will play music before the Lord. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play in the band. I'm going to join the band. I'm going to sing in the choir. I'm going to worship the Lord publicly. The king joins the band. Headline for tomorrow's paper. And I will be even more undignified than this. I'm going to stand on the stage with the band and embarrass you every chance I can. I will be even more undignified than what you just saw because the Lord chose me. I will sing to the Lord. I will play music to the Lord because the Lord chose me. There's a, there's a difference in my life today because of what happened to me because I understand that I am chosen of God. And there's no way I can look at the world the same way after I understand in my heart of hearts that I am chosen of God. I will be more undignified than this. And I will humble myself. I will be humble in my own sight. I will choose humility for myself. That's humble in my own sight. I will humble myself. I will, I will sing and I will play music to God. I will be more in, in dig, undignified than I have been here today. And I will humiliate myself. If that's what you think this really is. And I will do it even in my own eyes. He is so desperately joyful that he can't hold back. And then someone came, comes along, slaps him silly. Isn't that what most of us are afraid of when we worship? that we're going to do something undignified. You know, that <clears throat> somehow we're going to upset somebody or maybe even God. You know, I would like to argue that your act of worship can never upset God if it's truly an act of worship toward God. You ever watch that little kid play in the living room and just get so jazzed that they can't hold still? Are you ever ashamed? Do you look at them and say, how dare they dance around the living room because they're so excited? Have you ever been chosen for something you really wanted to be chosen for? I mean, it starts when you're a little kid. It starts when uh, probably third, fourth grade when they start picking teams for things. You know, you line the whole class up. You're standing there along. Okay, everybody, right? Stand on this white line and you line yourself up and you're standing there with the other kids. And you want to be on, on Buddy's team because that's the team. That's the team. And you kind of stand there hoping that you're going to get picked and people are getting picked and people you know are better than you are getting picked, but you know somewhere here soon you're going to be picked and you're just hoping you get picked by Buddy. And you get picked by Buddy and a smile breaks out on your face and you walk over to your to your team, and now you feel bigger than you were before. And if you were still five, you would dance. You would. Because you wouldn't care if anybody was watching. Desperately joyful people 
come to worship God. Worship flows from the knowledge that you are chosen and not deserving. Those two have to be together. You know, have you ever been the best person to be picked? Have you ever been the person who should be picked first? And the two guys are standing over, the two ladies are standing over there, and you know you're going to be picked first because you are the biggest, baddest kid in the third grade. And when they pick you, it's not joyful. It's like, yeah, you made a good choice, and you walk over. One. All of you, less than. See, when you're picked and you know you don't deserve it, when you should be picked last and you're picked first, wow. Then you know the joy of being chosen because the joy of being chosen comes out of not being deserving of being chosen. You see, David knows David. And he knows he doesn't deserve to be king. As far as David's brain is still concerned, he's just a shepherd boy. He's just a kid from a medium-sized family out there should be watching the sheep and throwing rocks at things that are approaching. But he's been chosen by God to be king of Israel. And he's like, wow. See, when you have been chosen in the full knowledge that you are undeserving, then you have nothing left to do but worship. When God chooses you and you know you don't deserve it, that's when worship becomes spontaneous in us. Brendan Manning says something that might just, in, uh, uh, just uh, offend all of us this morning. It's in the book Ragamuffin Gospel. In every dimension, actually worship is before this, in every dimension of our existence, many of us pretend to believe that we are sinners. Sit with that for just a second. Many of us pretend to believe that we are sinners. Consequently, we, to, we pretend to believe that, believe that we are forgiven. Because if we think we're deserving of salvation in any way, we're kind of playing at this thing of needing to be forgiven. When we come to the conclusion that we actually need to be forgiven then forgiveness means something big. When we pretend to be forgiven, we constantly pretend, or when we pretend to be sinners, we consequently pretend to believe that we are forgiven. As a result, our whole spiritual life is pseudo-repentance and pseudo-bliss. I'm just going to let that on, leave that on stage for a minute. Because until we confront our real need, the outsized nature of forgiveness isn't appreciated. When we really know the brokenness of our own hearts, then the nature of God's forgiveness becomes more powerful. And it may not lead you to dancing, but it will lead your heart to worship because we have no other response. So one of the things I love about singing, and I'm glad we're going to be able to get back to singing, 
is that singing is a testimony. And very often the testimony in those songs is, Lord, I need you. I recognize how far I've fallen. I recognize how large your grace is. And I need it. Jesus is is drawn to the desperate. I do not know what's going on, Anna, but I'm pointing at you. There we go. Jesus is drawn to the desperate. I want you to catch this in the New Testament in a few places. Jesus is drawn to the desperate. So I want to take you in your mind to the pool of Bethesda. Okay? Remember the story? If you want to see a really great portrayal of this, watch The Chosen. What is it? The fourth or fifth episode of the second season or whatever. It's, it's, a, it's a portrayal of this that will inform your thinking about it for the rest of your days. I think you'll really enjoy it. The Chosen is free. You can, it's an app on your phone. You can, you can get it easily. They, they have put this visually in a way that's amazing, but save that for later because I can't do it for you right now. But I want you to get the facts of the story as they are presented in Scripture. It's a very simple story when you think about it. Jesus walks into this pool of Bethesda place. Now, the pool of Bethesda has been a place of healing for a long time. There's been, there's been a temple there to various gods demonstrating or stating that this was a place of healing. We don't know what happened to make that first happen. We know that warm water pools are often thought to be places of healing. Mineral pools were often thought to be places of healing. If you go to Springview Park, do you know there was a spring in Springview Park just up the street? And if you go around the backside of Springview Park, it's still bubbling in this little place you would never want to actually get yourself into, but it's still there. There's still a spring back there, and people used to come to that warm spring in search of healing. It's not uncommon for people to go to warm bodies of water in search of healing, or something about this particular body of water brought people to gather there. In desperate hope, in desperate hope that this might be the answer to their problem. And here is this man that we're introduced to. A certain man who had an infirmity for 38 years. Anybody been sick for a month? You mean sick? I mean, you're, not, you're really not feeling good for a month? Anybody been hospitalized for two or three months, where your, your, your movements are limited, your intake is limited, somebody's watching everything you do, there's bags and drains and things running out of your body. Ever been in there for a month? When I first moved here, we had a, a member of the church who was in the hospital for nine continuous months. And every day they came in and they debreeded, which is a nice word. They debreeded his wound. His wound was about that big. And every day they came in and they basically scraped him. Scraped it and cleaned it. Every single day. Nine months. And I saw him. The church was small. I could get to almost everybody. I got to him nearly every day. And he got a little stir crazy. And he got to hate that debreeding process. He knew the nurses were trying to save his life. He knew that the doctors were trying to do something to keep him from dying. But he hated that process. He had to distract himself and figure out other things. He, he started trying to learn to paint because nine months is a long time to be confined in a hospital. Imagine 38 years. 
and no recovery. By this time, he's probably gone to all the doctors he can go to. Remember the woman with the, the, with the, the bleeding for 12 years? She'd gone to every doctor. She'd spent all of her money. He's long past that. He's 20 plus years past that. And here he sits in the last desperate hope that maybe he can be the first one in the water and maybe the, the rumors are true and maybe this, this will work because nothing else has worked. And Jesus walks into the precincts of the pool of Bethesda and he looks round for the most desperate person there. He's been here 38 years. He walks up to that man. And he says, T- <laughs> yeah, I'm getting so far ahead. Jesus saw him lying there, knew that he'd already been there in that condition for a long time. The Son of God, who can do something about this, walks in on this guy and immediately knows his story. He approaches him and he says to him, Do you want to be made well? It's wild that even in those places where we're desperately seeking God's help in something, He won't insert Himself without permission. Do you really want to get well? It's a question we ought to answer, really. Do you really want to be made well? Do you want to see the changes that you think you want, really? The sick man answers him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. You see, the sick man is is stuck on his last desperate idea. He's got one idea left. All the others have been tried. He's just got the one, one concept of how he might change his circumstances. And he says, sir, I'm here by the water with all these other people. And when the water is stirred, I have no one to put me in the water. I can't get there on my own. Isn't it interesting how many times we limit God by what we are willing to pray for? The man wants to be healed. He's praying for a nurse. He's praying for some big brawny nurse who can toss him in the water ahead of everybody else. He wants to be made whole, but he's figured out how it has to be done. You ever go to God with a plan? He's going to God with a plan. He said, just throw, can, can, you, can you, God, I, I, don't, I don't need anything else from you. Could you just send some big burly guy who can chuck me into the water when the time comes? Sir, I, I, I have no man to put me into the pool. Maybe he's looking at Jesus' shoulders. Jesus is a carpenter. He's probably a pretty strong guy, probably a pretty muscular looking guy. He's probably looking him up and down saying, maybe you could throw me in. Jesus said to the man, get up. This is cutting right to the chase, isn't it? I have no one to throw me into the pool. Rise. Take up your bed and walk. You know why he takes up the bed? Stolen straight from Chosen. Because he's not coming 
back. Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked out. I bet he danced like David. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you break out the best moves you could imagine in that moment? I think the Bible's underplaying what happened. I'd be so excited. I'd be probably stepping on the other people, tripping over folks, just so jazzed. So desperately joyful after no longer being desperately needy. Jesus shows up and changes I want you to catch the very next phrase about Jesus. The man goes off and walks. He gets questioned by the Pharisees and all that sort of. Skip all of that. The next thing the Bible says about Jesus is that Jesus found him in the temple. He gets healed. He gets the undeserved blessing of God. The unexpected blessing of God. All I wanted God to do for me was throw me in the pool. And his natural response is worship. He goes to church. A lot of places this guy could have gone. Home? To tell his friends? Go find somebody to celebrate with? He goes to the source of the blessing. He goes to the temple. Jesus comes, says to him, this is verse 14, this is near the end of it. And he says to him, so you've been made well. Yes. Sin no more. Lest the worst thing come upon you. This is the other piece of this that I want to make sure we see. Repentance is a humbling of yourself in recognition that that following God is your only hope. It takes humility to repent, to really repent. It takes humility to really change your direction. It it takes a heart that recognizes its state of undeservedness to say, I, I keep walking in this direction, I keep falling into the same hole. God, I will follow you. I'll, I'll turn and go the direction that you're trying to lead me. I'll, I will stop trying to lead and I will commit to being a follower. It's another story similar to this one. You see, Jesus doesn't always... Uh, find the desperate people. Sometimes the desperate people are brought to him. This is in John chapter 8. A woman is brought to Jesus. It's early in the morning. Jesus has come to uh, the, the, the temple. It's, uh, this is verse 2. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. So Jesus is coming to the temple. He's gathered one of those spots in the temple. 
he's sitting there. Maybe he's under Solomon's portico somewhere in a nice sunny spot in the early morning that's where the sun's low and shining in. And, he, and people start to gather around. They say, hey, that Jesus guy's over there. And a crowd starts to build. People start to come. Jesus starts to teach them. And as Jesus starts to teach these people, just a, just a group of people, just a gathering of followers, people who want to find, more, find out more about Jesus, they're, they're having church. And the Pharisees and the scribes show up. And they bring on a woman caught in the act of adultery. There's no question about what she did. She's caught in adultery. Remember the story. It's a famous story in the Bible. A woman caught in adultery. They don't bring the man. Because he obviously jumped and ran off and they weren't able to catch him. You know, there was, you know, she was the only one they could catch. And they bring him in before Jesus. Their, their attempt here is not to... Not even to find justice where she's concerned. Their attempt here is to manipulate Jesus into saying something that will get him into trouble. They're trying to back Jesus into a corner. It's pretty shameful what they're doing. It's pretty shameful what they've done to her. My heart breaks for this woman. Can you imagine somebody dragging someone in before church, even even today, and just throwing them down in front of us. They're half-clothed. They're desperate, crying, heartbroken, embarrassed, ashamed. They're thrown down in front of the church mercilessly, and they're saying to the church, what are you going to do about this? That's who Jesus is. He's the church. He's, they're saying, what are you going to do about this? Moses says we should stone her. The Romans say we can't. What do you say? Messiah man. I love what Jesus does because he takes the attention off her and places it on him. You want to gather attention? Get up in a situation where you're supposed to speak and say nothing. Even the people who are asleep will wake up. Because they're expecting the droning of voices to continue. And when the droning of voices stop, they'll wake up and go, happening jesus says nothing to this very pointed question and instead he kneels down they keep pushing him and he says okay you any of you who are without sin you go ahead and throw a stone at her he starts writing no more words Now people are wondering what he's writing. They've forgotten she's even there. Now everybody's trying to see what he's writing in the dirt. And this woman has a moment to pull the sheet or the clothes or whatever she has around her and to be out of the limelight for a minute. And he he quietly writes. We don't know how long it took. He says nothing while he's writing. And pretty soon these guys who are watching the writing start disappearing. Jesus draws all the attention from this poor woman onto himself and he's writing. He's writing. He's writing. People are leaving. And he keeps writing. People are leaving. He keeps writing. And he writes to the last, most stubborn, most difficult, most unwise, walks off. When that happens, Jesus speaks. When all of her 
condemning faculty walks off. Then he speaks. I picture him rising up off the ground, dusting off the bottom of his robe, looking at the young lady and asking her the question, the the very first question he asks of her. Where are your accusers? They're gone. Then the words, neither do I condemn you. John chapter 3, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, he said, I did not come to condemn the world. I came to save it. He said, I did not come to judge the world. You judge yourselves by not choosing to be saved. He then says in verse 12, just after, now looking out at everybody. I don't know if she's slipped off by now. She's in the edge of the crowd. Don't know. He now looks out at the crowd after having this experience. Looks out at the audience, the people who have gathered, maybe more have gathered by now, having seen the Pharisees and the scribes come and go. As I am the light of the world, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You see, what what he had said to the man at the pool when he found him in the temple, repent means to follow, means to turn and follow him, to change your direction, to stop trying to lead and start becoming a follower, not to, to stop believing that you're deserving of salvation, recognize you're not and accept it from him. Follow me. If you, if, if you will recognize that I am the light of the world, You will not walk in darkness because you're following me. When he's preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are desperate for righteousness because they will be filled. We are invited to be part of the communion of the desperate. Led by a desperate God. This is the last thing I want to say to you today that the communion of the desperate is led by a desperate king who humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. See, we said at the beginning, David had told his wife, I will be even more undignified than this, and I will humiliate myself. And the Bible tells us that God was so desperate to save you and to save me. That he humbled himself and became a man. And not only did he become a human being bound by our own broken flesh, 
he humbled himself to the point where he was willing to die because he was desperate for us to have a way to be saved. To be able to stand in front of every one of us and say, where are your accusers? You're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. It'd be cool to be a part of the communion of the desperate dancers. Let's pray. Father God, there's there's so many ways throughout the scriptures where you paint the picture. The father watching the horizon for his runaway son. The king who lets out his land to some unfaithful farmers and keeps sending prophet after prophet, person after person, messenger after messenger, and finally sends his own son. Today we recognize that we are undeserving of the forgiveness you've given We are most grateful. I pray, Lord, that we will that we will remember how how low you had to stoop to reach us, so that we will appreciate with the fullness of our heart what grace cost you. filled with joy and worship as we follow you home.